Well, good morning, everyone. How are you? If you've been following the, uh, the COVID stats in our county, um, you know that our state looks very similar to that map I put up last week of all the pubs in the UK. We are just plastered with red at this point in time. So I've got a mask on. I got some sniffles today. I've got a mask on. Our staff has some masks on. You, certainly you're welcome to wear a mask as well. Um, and if you have any potential for being sick, I encourage you to wear a mask. Here's the deal. I had uh, one of our staff said, hey, I was exposed to someone a couple of days ago who just tested positive last night. Here's what I'm thinking. I'm gonna. I don't have any symptoms. I'm gonna come. I'm gonna wear my mask. And I said, you know what? I think that is a great idea because the honest truth is this: we've all been exposed to someone who has COVID at this point in time. So, what we're gonna do? What we did at the first service is when we finish up the service today, those of you who really need to get out without interacting with people, you're gonna head out. We're gonna sing a final song. Those of you who can stick around and feel pretty confident with your health, you can uh, you can stick around, sing with us, and give those folks a chance to to uh, to sneak out a little bit early. All that to be said, I'm glad you're here. And uh, despite the little sniffles and stuff that most of us have going on, hopefully that's all it is. We want to stay safe and healthy. None of us have time to, to take off for 10 days at this point in our lives, so stay healthy. We are in week 19 of 52. We're moving right along, aren't we? Moving right along. Uh, today we're going to be talking out about morality, which if you're a religious person, you love to be talking about morality. This world is going to hell in a handbasket. If they would just do things right, then the world would straighten up. It's not that different than Jesus' day. We're going to look at that. But we're going to start by, I want to remind you of something that was pretty stressful and traumatic for me as a child. Maybe it was for you. SAT bubble tests. Anyone else remember those SAT bubble tests and how, like, did you guys get, like, nervous about those days? So, I, you know, they start talking about them early. So, you know, that just gives me more chance for my anxiety to build. And, of course, you have to have that number two. And I never knew if my pencil was really a number two or if it was number eight. I don't know what those are. So I would have to make sure that I had the, the yellow Ticonderoga with the number two on it just to make sure. I would go to bed at 8 o'clock the night before, make sure everything was ready. I wanted to prepare for that bubble test every way I possibly could. I wanted, I wanted to be prepared. And I would get there, and they'd pass the test out. And I'd, be, I'd be looking to my left and right, and over here is Missy, and she's got this, like, silver balloon pencil with a fuzzy eraser on it, and John over here has got this weird thing that he's using. I'm like, what are these jokers thinking? It said number two. Where's your number two? That's a big real fault. Just as a, just as an informal survey, how many of you guys are, when it says number two, you get the number two, and you get the yellow Ticonderoga pencil, and that's what you use. How many of you, like, if it says number two, I'm doing number two. How many of you guys are like, ah, it doesn't matter. Balloons, teddy bears, come on. It's a pencil's a pencil. Come on. How many of you guys are like that? Yeah. You drive me nuts, by the way. I'm learning, I'm learning, I'm learning, but mm, it's hard. It's hard. I like rules. Now, some rules make sense. 
Number two, graphite, I guess. The computer reads that really well. There's a reason for that. Some don't. When I was in Sunday school, by the way, our Sunday school here, uh, Sunday school classes, we have basically two rules. Respect the teacher and be kind to the students. And if, those, if you're doing those two things, generally, we're going to get along just fine. When I was going to Sunday school as a kid, little 12-year-old Timmy Thompson, uh, there were lots of rules. One, don't run in the church. Um, don't say bad words. Um, do wear the right kind of clothes. There were some clothes that were appropriate for church, and there were some that were not appropriate for church. And the kind of church I went to, you had to make sure you had the right kind of Bible. You bring your Bible, but you better make sure it's the right kind of Bible. And my church was, you know, old school. So the right kind of Bible would have been the King James versions. You guys went to the same church I did. Being right with God and being right with the world was about following all the rules and doing it exactly right. And again, some rules make sense. Computers, graphite, that makes sense. Bad words, bad attitudes, well, no one likes those. Those make sense. Some seem arbitrary, having exactly the right kind of Bible. I got this beautiful new Bible for my 12th birthday. My mom and dad got it for me. It's the living Bible with language that a 12-year-old could read and understand and make sense of, but my Sunday school teacher said, don't be bringing that one back. That didn't really make much sense to me. She also had this thing about my hair. If my hair got too long, she would tell me, Tim, it's time to get your hair cut. Don't come back until you get a haircut. Like, okay, that, she was a treat. Let's just say that. She was a treat. <laughs> But her point was that, listen, you don't need to know the why. You just need to know the what. And here's the rules. Here's the what. Do this, do this, don't do this, don't do that. And as much as I hated it, at the same time, the verse that is our core verse today seems to reinforce it. Look at this in Matthew 5, verse 20. Jesus is speaking, and he says, For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees, and the teachers of the law, then you're certainly not going to enter the kingdom of heaven. Whew. You know, it's been a long time since that 12-year-old Timmy first heard that. But after those almost 50 years, I still want to get it right. I still want to please God. I still want to honor Jesus. And so I like the rules. I love the big concepts, atonement and justification by faith and covenant but I tell you, my heart just warms when someone says, here's what you should do, and here's what you shouldn't do. Little, little number two, Ticonderoga, loves that. So today we're going to look at not just the, the what, but for those of you who are balloon pencil and teddy bear pencils, we're going to look at the, the why. Not just the what, but the why, the heart behind these issues that Jesus feels is really important for his followers to know about. So turn to Matthew chapter 5. That's where we were last week. We're going to move just a little bit north of that. Uh, we start, we're going to be starting, starting in about uh, 13 and 14. We're going to start there. So go ahead and turn there in chapter 5. If you've got your Bible app, you can pull that up. If you have neither of those things, then we'll have some scriptures on the screen for us, and I'll pray and we'll get started. 
Father, it is our desire. I don't think I'm the only one in the room that wants to honor you with, with my life and with my actions. And so today as we open your word and you, and you speak to us, Jesus, you speak to us from the scripture. We pray that we will, we will listen with ears um, that capture uh, the, the heart behind these rules that we like to follow. Why, why do they matter? Well, here's, here's why they matter to God. We want to learn that. So we pray that we would be receptive to the Holy Spirit this morning as you instruct us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. There was something different about Jesus. You didn't have to be around him very long before you noticed it. There was something about the, the, the way he taught. And so even if you just caught a little snippet of his teaching, you're like, well, hmm, that's different. There was, there, was, there was a difference in the way he sort of just acted. He was different than the ab- other rabbis, and you just had to spend a little bit of time with him. You go, hmm, that's not how other rabbis do this. Impacted by his ministry, you didn't have to be the one to be healed for you to see it and go, huh, no other rabbi is doing that kind of stuff. Matthew tells us uh, in chapter 4, verse 23, he says this, Jesus is going through Galilee. He's teaching in the synagogue, yeah. He's proclaiming good news of the kingdom. Okay, that's interesting. I wonder what that's about. And he's healing every disease and sickness among the people. Well, we got to go check that out. And in verse 25, it says, large crowds are following him. Well, why not? Why wouldn't they? You see, he, he ate and drank with people most others wouldn't. He doesn't take a traditional approach to anything, let alone like the most holy day, the Sabbath. And he calls into question with almost everything he does the authority of the respected religious figures. He teaches righteousness, but his version is so different from what we think about it that it's very disorienting. Sometimes it feels like he's tossing out all the old rules and instituting new ones. And some people found that blasphemous. Others found it exhilarating. And that combination always to a big crowd. Now, it's a mixed bag of a crowd, just like our gatherings are. There's the religious guys who are standing back in the back with their, with their fancy robes and their religious tassels, and they're letting everyone around them know that they're religious, they're spiritual, and they're here not because they need to be here, but because they want to just make sure that Jesus says it exactly right and doesn't, doesn't blaspheme. But there's also the guy that's in a business with his brother-in-law, and man, it's been hard. They've had a fight. They don't agree on the direction of the company, and man, it's got to the point where they don't even go to the same gatherings for fear they'll see each other. The business is falling apart, but, he, but he's drawn to Jesus, and he, and he loves what Jesus is sharing, and something in his heart responds to it. Also, on that hillside, there's a woman. To everyone else, she looks great. She's got her life together, lovely family, lovely home, lovely marriage, but on the sly, she's meeting this guy down the street, and it's her best friend's husband. And it's not gotten too far yet, but man, she's like, it's not right, it's not right, but she shows up to hear what Jesus has to say. She's drawn to it. There's that young worker who just feels like slammed all the time at work. He can do nothing right for his boss. And finally, he says, you know what? You can shove it. I'm getting out of here, and I'm going over to the hillside. Jesus is talking. I'm going to go hang out with people who appreciate me. 
they've all come to hear him because, I don't know, Jesus is cool. They love his teaching on grace, and if you, if you sort of feel bad about yourself already and want to justify yourself before God, then you love that message on grace. After all, God loves you just the way you are. It's a great justifier for bad behavior, by the way. So they're very unsettled when Jesus <laughs> uh, moves into this section of his sermon. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, he says, hey, don't get the wrong idea. Don't think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them. I've come to fulfill them. (laughs) He says, I'm actually going to double down on all of God's law. But what I want you to understand is not just the what, but the why. I want you to understand it from a kingdom perspective. If you remember last week, we had that map, that map of the kingdom. He goes, I want you to understand things the way that it's to be understood in the kingdom. Now, I know in a crowd this size, we've got, we've got professionals. We've got, we've got medical professionals. We've got, we've got pharmacists. We've got doctors and teachers. We've got uh, plumbers and electricians. And the way that we, we know who you are and validate who you are is we make you go through a process, don't we? You, 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 have, to, you have to sign up for school to learn to do that. You have to buy the books. You have to read the books. You have to go to class. You take notes. You do all the practicums. Um, maybe maybe you, you do some internships somewhere. You take the test. You pass the test. That's very important. And then at the end of all of it, you, you get your certificate. You say, hey, you are now a plumber. You're now an electrician. Hey, now you're a doctor. Hey, now you're a pharmacist. Hey, now you're a teacher. But Jesus does something really, really different. You see, the people gathered around there, even those religious people, understood religiousness and being approved and accepted by God in sort of that same way. You, you, get, you get the book, according to my Sunday school teacher, the right book. You read it all the time. You do what it says. Um, sometimes there'll be some tests, and someone's going to ask you on Bible Trivia Night what the questions are, and you've got to be able to give those answers back. And if you do that all really, really well, you show up to Sunday, you put your shirt and tie on, your tie on, please wear a shirt regardless of the tie. You put your shirt on and your pants on, and you bring, get your Bible into your arm, and you show up, and people go, ooh, oh, they're... they're they're Christians. They're children of God. And, and you start to think, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm, because I do all this stuff, I'm, I'm a child of God. Jesus doesn't start there with getting the books. He, he says right off, let me give myself some room here because I'm going to need to travel. He says right off, we're going to start <laughs> at the end. You see, you see, when it comes to being a child of God, you've already graduated. You, you are a child of God. He, he says there, I, I, I love this, you, 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 you're the salt, you're the light. Look at verse 13 to 14. You're the salt, you're the light. You are a child of God. You got the diploma. You got the certification. You've, you've got the crown. You are a child of God. The training, the preparation, all of the stuff that you need to know comes after this. So where before, you start over here with getting your books from TIS, and now you walk towards the goal of getting your degree, Jesus says, no, 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 we're going to start here. You are a child of God, and now we're going to start working (laughs) our way back, and we're going to learn what that means. And he says, it begins, first of all, by just looking around, because, because this means that your relationship 
relationship with other people now looks different. You see, to the guy who's struggling with his, with his relative and the business they share and how it's tearing apart their family, their disagreement, he says, the people in your life are not just a problem for you to manage. Jesus says, I express myself to you through them. And to hammer this point home, he says this in Matthew 5, verses 23 and 24. He goes, because my relationship with you is so tied up in and connected to your relationship with your brothers and sisters in Christ or even out of Christ, because that is so important, if, if you are offering your gift at the altar and you, you remember while you're doing that, that your brother or sister has something against you. Not that you have something against them, that, that they have something against you. Stop. Stop what you're doing. Get up out of your pew, leave the building, and take care of that. Leave your gift at the front of the altar, go and be reconciled to them, and then come back and offer your gift. At the first service, we did this, and, and we actually closed our eyes. I said, I'm gonna, we're going to close our eyes for about 30 seconds, and you, this is your chance. If you need to get up and go reconcile with your brother, this is your time. No one's going to notice. No one's going to see it. No one moved, so we're not going to do it this time. But someone did say, you know what? I sent a text to my brother. I thought, I love that. So reconciling with your brother is as easy as saying, hey, can we talk this week? Do it now. If there's something that's coming between you and God, because it definitely will, it will affect your relationship with him. Oh, one of the favorite psalms is Psalm. And here's what David writes. He says, Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. It is. It is. It's good and it's pleasant, but there's something more. He says, For there the Lord, and I love how the King James puts this. Thank you, Sunday school teacher. For there the Lord commanded the blessing life forevermore. I love that word, commanded. It puts me in mind of like a soldier who is ready to go wherever he is commanded to go. I picture blessing as that sort of a soldier. And the God of angel army says, blessing, go over to Sherwood Oaks Christian Church Bedford, for there people are dwelling in unity. It is good and pleasant. And you go and bless that congregation. Man, I love that. But he says it doesn't stop there. Jesus says he looks to the woman who's having an inappropriate relationship. He, he says this to her. And if you read verses 27 through 32, you, you'll see how this plays out. Jesus says, listen, your relationship with your spouse is a covenant relationship. And he says it's better to lose a vital organ than to, than to damage that trust, than to lose that. You see, adultery is not just betraying a spouse, it's, it's also betraying God and the person who put you in that relationship with them. And that betrayal, you know, that betrayal, whether it's to God or your spouse, that betrayal is horrible. Now, I, I want to say this, thankfully, thankfully, the social and religious stigma associated with divorce is not what it was in Jesus' day. 
that's a good thing. Can we just agree that, that no one is going hungry or thirsty or kicked out in the street because of divorce? That's, that's a good thing. But, but if you have gone through a divorce, then, then I think you would agree. Divorce is still horrible. All the things that go along with divorce. Even when it's merited, even when there's a reason for it, you've got you to gotta, you gotta just deal with broken promises and abuse and rejection. There's grief. There's family instability. There's heartache, dysfunction, betrayal, anger, confusion on everyone's part. There's shame. And there's emotional and sometimes even physical violence associated with all that stuff that comes along with divorce. I hate it. I hate that stuff. There's not one of those things that I think, ooh, I want that. No, we hate that stuff. You see, God hates divorce for the same reason you hate divorce. When God says he hates divorce, it's because he hates what hurts those he loves. And he hates divorce because he loves you. And your divorce, whether it was merited or unmerited, no matter the conditions under how it happened, no matter if you were at fault or they were at fault, God loves you, and nothing changes that. Jeremiah 31, 3, he writes this to, to his people who have, who have just treated him horribly, and yet he says, I have loved you with an everlasting love, a love that never ends, and I have drawn you with unfailing kindness. Kindness like cords that just pull you closer and closer. He says, no matter what you've been through, no matter what has happened, I love you. I love that. <laughs> Jesus talks about our relationship with truth. Now, if you were to ask my dad, he would, he would say, I, I consider it being creative and imaginative. Dad considers it a tenuous grasp on truth. And he would say this to me all the time. He would quote this Bible verse, Matthew 5, 37. Tim, he would say, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Jesus goes further. He says, anything beyond this comes from the evil one. You see, not bearing false witness was a big deal. God included it in one of the top ten commandments. No, don't do this. Don't bear false, false witness. Truth is very important to God. If you ever said, cross my heart and hope to die or I swear to God, truth you're trying to impress on others the importance of truth as well. But Jesus says, listen, if you're adding stuff to your truthfulness, then it actually dilutes <laughs> the confidence people have in your truthfulness. Truth matters to God. Don't dilute it. Don't compromise it. In chapter uh, 1 of John, when, uh, when John is introducing us to Jesus, introducing his readers to Jesus in verse 14, he says, Jesus came from the Father, and he came full of grace and truth. Grace and truth. And because of that, any prevarication, any diluting of the truth is a rejection of who Jesus is. And it's also a snare of the enemy, he says. Anything beyond that is, is from the devil. I, a good friend of mine, Deb Ransom, she's the pastor of the, she's the wife of the former pastor at Crossroads. Um, and she would always say this, tell the truth and make the devil mad. Ever, anyone ever hear that saying? Tell the truth, make the devil mad. In fact, turn to someone and say, tell the truth, make the devil mad. It's a good, it's a good quote, a good reminder. It's true. When we speak the truth, we foil the snares and the intentions of the enemy. Now, 
We make the devil mad, but sometimes when we speak the truth, we make other people mad too. Anyone have experience with that? So Jesus says, here's, here's how you speak truth. You speak truth after you baptize it in grace. Jesus came with grace and truth, full of grace and truth. And so when we speak, it should be full of truth, but it should also be full of grace. Paul writes in Ephesians 4.15, he says, speak the truth in love. And when you speak the truth in love, we're going to grow up in every respect to, to, to look like Jesus, the head of the church, Christ. So, with each other, with our spouse, with truth. How about relationships with our, uh, our, our adversaries, our enemies? You know, when I was going to school, out in the playground, it could get rough. You kick me, I kick you. You poke me in the eye, I poke you in the eye. Playground justice, it's how the world works, doesn't it? An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. And Jesus says, uh-uh, uh, not, not in the kingdom. Different rules, different rules, guys. He says, turn the other cheek. Go the extra mile. Take the extra step. Forgive. Now, I don't know what turn the other cheek means to you, but at the very least, it means this. When we have difficulties with people, we stick around. Close enough that if they want to slap us on the other cheek, they could. We don't run away. We don't avoid them. We don't walk through Walmart with our eyes peeled, hoping we don't run into that person that we don't want to run into. No. When, we, when Jesus says, turn the other cheek, he's saying, hey, you stay close. When you're having a difficulty with someone, even your enemy, stay close. Don't abandon them. You know, we seem to jump at every opportunity to call out and shame our opponents or even those that we just don't like. It's not just political stuff, although that's a whole, whole other topic. But it's also just silly stuff. Like if someone doesn't make the perfect cup of coffee for us at Starbucks, we feel like we got to say, hey, just let you know, it's, things are horrible at Starbucks today. They didn't, no, 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 Oh, Jesus says, what are you doing? You're a child of God. That stuff is wrong, not just because it's, it's petty, which it is really, really petty. It's because you betray your father. Your Father in heaven who allows the sun to shine on you and rain to water your garden on both your good and your bad days. Look what he says in Matthew 5, verse 44 and 45. He says, I tell you this, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven who causes his Son to rise on the evil and who? The good. And he sends rain on the righteous and who? The unrighteous. And if you hang around with me for any length of time, you'll know that that describes me. Good, evil, good, righteous, unrighteous to some varying degree about every afternoon at 2 o'clock when I'm like, I'm done with everybody. But God is loving to me on my most unlovely days. So I can be kind and gracious to others on their unlovely days, because we all have them, don't we? We all have unlovely days. And if we can show grace and kindness to people on their unlovely days, then we demonstrate that we really are who God says we are. We're children of God. We're children of our Father. Which brings us to the, the next thing he talks about is our relationship with Him. Here's the deal. It's, it's pretty easy to fake religion, isn't it? We got the right book. We got our verses memorized. We show up at church, which is sort of the test. If we, if we show up, well, we sort of get a pass then, don't we? 
Have you ever heard of performative justice? Performative justice is this thing that I've noticed the last couple of years, and it's, it's sort of defined as the very least thing you can do and still be approved by your social circle. And so, so, so maybe it's, hey, everyone's talking about this, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to change the color of the band around my, my picture on Facebook, or I'm, I'm going to retweet this because if I do, people go, oh, you, uh, I see, uh, 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 uh. Maybe it's repeating a slogan. Maybe it's pasting a bumper sticker on your car. That's what we did in the 80s before we could tweet. We just put bumper stickers on our car. But it's this idea that by doing those stupid things, that we're actually doing something good. We change the color on our Facebook page, and all of a sudden, well, we've we support uh, our armed forces or our police or Black Lives Matter or, I don't know, teachers or nurses or doctors. All we've really done is change the color around our picture. We've not done anything except be seen by people and go, oh, hmm, okay. We were simply seen by men. Performative religion is worse. We've all done it. Uh, speaking of Facebook, past two weeks I ran across a post from my own feed. It was probably during COVID where I had this picture of the table and my Bible was open and maybe there were a few other like important Bible books around me, a cup of coffee, and something like getting ready to dig into God's Word for the sermon Sunday. Now, here's the truth. It was two years ago, so I'm not really sure. Maybe I did have a wonderful 15, 20 hour with God around that time, but I'm going to be honest with you. There's probably a really good chance (laughs) that that picture was only posted so y'all could see it and go, oh, isn't Tim great? He is so spiritual. Uh, you know what? I really need to be like Tim. Just spend time with God, get my coffee. My, no. Here's the deal. It might have been sincere, but looking back, I look back and go, uh, it really feels pretty performative. Meant to be seen and approved by men. If you've ever done something like that, then Jesus has some instructive words for us. He says this in Matthew 6, verse 2, when you give, don't announce it with trumpets. You don't need to put something on Facebook or get your name plastered on the wall or make sure people go, oh, you know, I heard that, I, I, I heard that they had a need. Yeah, I, you know, I gave about $600 towards that. Really? No. Jesus says when you give, don't announce it with trumpets. Just, just do it. Just give. And if, and if anyone notices, that, that's fine. Downplay it. Jesus said many times, don't tell people what I just did. You don't have to go announce stuff. God sees it. God sees your generosity. And he says this in verse 6-5. When you pray, don't make a big show of it. He says, don't worry about impressing God, first of all, who's not impressed, or other people. And if you're tempted to do that in a way that other people go, hey, that was a great prayer, then maybe you just need to pray behind closed doors. Maybe you just need to go in what Jesus calls the closet and, and just let the white walls hear what you're praying about. Stop with the performative religion. This week I was uh, scrolling through something and, and, and one of the little banners uh, on, on my news feed was, you know, how to, how to honor MLK, MLK, Martin Luther King Day, without ever leaving your sofa. 
if you know the recent history of Martin Luther King Day, you know that it's, it's really being tried to be pushed as a day on, not a day where you sit on your sofa, <laughs> where you actually give back to the community, where you volunteer at a homeless shelter, organize coats and food drives, or, or write letters to veterans. It's a way to make the area you live in better, and it honors the spirit of Dr. Martin Luther King. So when I saw this, how to observe Martin Luther King Day without ever leaving your sofa, I scratched my head, and I suspect Dr. King would scratch his head too, going, well, now this should be interesting. How do you think you're going to do this? It was very simple. You pushed a button, and you donated $10 to a good cause. And $10 is $10. That's great. But it maybe misses the spirit a little bit of what it means to have a day on. Here's the deal. I don't know what you've got planned for tomorrow, but this afternoon at 2 o'clock downtown, my good friend, Clarence Brown, he's been doing this for years. He's been organizing a Martin Luther King Day observance, and we go down, and we, and we have a prayer. And, of course, Clarence, if you know Clarence, you know there's going to be singing. If you know this little light of mine, you will know all the songs that we're going to sing today. He loves that one. We're going to sing, and we're going to march around the square. Now, you say, Tim, that sounds pretty performative to me. Yeah, it could be if you want to take pictures of yourself doing it and post to social media and pat yourself on the back with how, how, how aware you are of social justice issues. But if you just want to go and encourage a man who has poured his heart and soul into this community for many, many years and to, and to share, and, and, and this, share this time with other people in the community who care about unity. Remember what God bestows on a community that shows unity? He bestows a blessing. And if you want to be part of that, then I'm going to encourage you to show up at 2 o'clock. There's another prayer event over at Dive after that. I'm not going to be able to go to that, but I'm going to be downtown. And it would be so encouraging if you got off your couch and came down and, and were part of that with us. Here's the deal. Jesus says in Matthew 5.20, I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you'll not enter, you'll surely not enter. You'll certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. And I got to be honest with you, my righteousness falls way short of the Pharisees and teachers of the law. David felt it too. In Psalm 15, he says, Lord, Lord, who, who may dwell in your sacred tent? Who may live on your holy mountain? Because I know it's only the one whose walk is blameless and who does what is righteous. And David said, Lord, you know me. You know me. You know my story. It's not characterized by blamelessness and righteousness, but Jesus says, that's the standard. That's the standard I set. And so if you're feeling discouraged, hmm, you've got a reason to be, but don't be because this is the truth. As Christians gathered here this morning, we have something that even those people gathered on the hillside in front of Jesus didn't have. We have the Holy Spirit. They had Jesus right in front of them. We have Jesus right inside of us. And so so, so when the Holy Spirit, who is Jesus inside of us, is in us, the Holy Spirit instructs us in righteousness. We're over here. We got our crown, and the Holy Spirit says, now I'm going to train you. I want to teach you what it means to be a son and a daughter of your Father in heaven. And one of the things he's teaching me is this idea, this concept called the next right thing. The next right thing. You see, when we have the Holy Spirit righteousness becomes a journey, a journey that's moving us closer and closer and closer towards what is right. And it always begins with that single first step, the next 
right thing step. No matter the challenge we face, no matter the relationship issues that we're struggling with, the next right thing is always right in front of us. Now, the next right thing may be pretty simple. It could be, hey, pick up your socks. Your mom asked you to do that. Go pick up your dirty socks. It could be, hey, take out the trash. Your wife asked you to do that. Go take out the trash. If you're feeling just overwhelmed and depressed and anxious, the next right thing may be, hey, hey, go take a shower and put on some clean clothes. (laughs) That always helps me. It could be something really huge, like going to your brother-in-law and saying, hey, let's sort this out. I, I, I hate where we're at relationally. Let, let's, let's, get this, let's get this right. Our families depend on it. Maybe, maybe it's making that phone call that says, hey, I, uh, you know what? I can't see you anymore. This is wrong. I, I got I to gotta, I gotta do the hard job of cutting off a wrong relationship. But the next right thing, no matter where you're at, is always available. It's always right there in front of you. And it keeps you from getting stuck in your life. And here's what I love. The next right thing happens around me as I take the next right step. Think about this. So many times when Jesus performed a miracle or engaged with people, after he did it, he gave them a simple thing to do a next right thing to do. To the leper, he healed. He said, the next right thing for you is to go present yourself to the priest. And he's going to give you a certification of clearance. He's going to clear you to go out and mix and mingle with people. You got to do that first. So the next right thing is simply go get the paperwork done. Maybe you just need to get some paperwork done. To the paralytic, remember the guy that dropped down through the ceiling? To the paralytic that he healed, he said, okay, here's the next right thing for you. Take up your bed and walk, and walk home to your family. They're going to be amazed. They've been praying almost hopelessly that this would happen, and, and you need to go and, and, and spend time with your family now that you've been healed. Maybe the next right thing for you is to reach out to your family. To the woman caught in adultery, he said, listen, you're forgiven. Don't do that again. Don't do that again. I think of Jarius and his wife. Remember Jarius? Jarius and his wife had, had a daughter who died. And Jesus comes and he prays for the daughter and he lays his hands on her and she is brought back to life. And, and here's what's something interesting. Jesus didn't say, okay now, mom and dad, what you really need to do is you need to find you a good church and you need to start going to church and you need to, maybe you can be greeters. Maybe you can help with the coffee. You need to do something. It's important for you to go to church. And for a little girl, she needs to be in Sunday school. Here's the deal. God has a wonderful plan for her life and you need to be, get her in school, in Sunday school where she can be discipled and grow up. Now, you know what his first thing for them was? He said, hey, <laughs> go fix her some lunch. She's been dead for just a little bit. She's, she's probably hungry. I love that. The leper, the paralytic, the woman caught in adultery, Jairus, his wife, the little girl, they were all given clear instructions by Jesus about what to do next. The next right thing. Not the next big thing. Not the next impressive thing. Not the next thing you can post to Instagram. Just the next right thing that's in front of you. And if you don't know what that is, Jesus says, hey, you have the Holy Spirit. Why don't you ask? 
So when I fought with a friend, hey, Holy Spirit, I've really messed up this relationship. What do I need to do next? When you've disappointed your spouse, (laughs) Holy Spirit, I think I know what I need to do, but could you just confirm it when we've not been honest with others? When we're angry and hurt, when we're feeling distant from God and alone, hey, Jesus, by your Holy Spirit, instruct me on the next right thing I should do. And here's what I found. Invariably, the next right thing always falls under this heading. (laughs) Love God and love others. That's what Jesus says in Matthew 22, verse 37. Simply love God and love each other. That's, in a nutshell, the next right thing. The next right thing will always honor God, and the next right thing will always demonstrate love for other people.